Hey, and welcome to another edition of the Rugby Report Card. I'm excited by this week. Not only did England absolutely wallop the Wallabies oh, this off, week. Richard. Thanks, boys. Um, I'm also uh, privileged to have a special guest this week, uh, a man who's played 63 times for Scotland, um, over 200 professional appearances, and we're, we're, it's a gr- real pleasure uh, for Jim Hamilton to join us today. So, uh, uh, Jim, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. No, thank you, and thank you for the warm introduction. Is it two hundred games of professional rugby? I thought I played five hundred. It's not. I think you are right. That's me. Oh, no, no, no. taking the piss. No, no, no. It. Let's yeah. definitely go with five hundred. We could. We should redo this. A thousand professional games. I think <laughs> uh, across many coats. Uh, it feels like that. So I think the, for, for us, we're, I'm excited about this week because we get to uh, talk about the, the international rugby. Uh, did you catch much of it this weekend? I didn't see any of the. Of course, I did. <laughs> of course, I did. <laughs> So, no, look, you know what? These, um, I, I keep calling them June series. It's now branched into July. These never, with all due respect, having even played in these series myself, they've never really been a huge thing. They've never been, like, massive in terms of the context of the season because here in the UK and Ireland, with the Premiership, with Europe, with the, the URC, with the Six Nations, with the Autumn Series, as we like to call it over here during November... These games often in years gone by were kind of in the shadows, really, of all the other tournaments. But this year, for whatever reason, and I probably know the reason, maybe because of COVID, maybe because there's a World Cup around the corner, they've been wicked. Maybe the quality of the games, but there seems a real appetite for rugby at the minute on this side of the world compared to what it has been around this series specifically. So, yeah, the games have been class. Because every uh, the June series, as they used to be, were the most interesting um, of the international tournament, sort of the end of Super Rugby here, leading into the Tri-Nations and the Bledisloe and all the different versions of that sort of competition. The June series was awesome because it was always a shoe-in victory. And you would We'd get a second-rate team come down and, and we'd be able to polish them up okay and, and go in with a bit of confidence. <laughs> What do you reckon? What what's changed? Why is the North doing so well? I mean, are, are they better than the South right now? Can I just interject to this point? Could you repeat what you just said there, Blake? The no, North, it, the it North hurts me to say. Sorry, the North. Are, I didn't quite catch you. The North are doing what? Sorry, they did well on the weekend. Oh right, sorry. It'll sorry, all be Jim. sorted next weekend. But oh, okay. What do you reckon, Jim? Is it? Is it? Uh, is there a, a turnaround here? Is the North? Well, not really a turnaround. They've, they've sort of been strong for two years now. Mm. Can I just say that's the nicest thing you yeah. said about Northern Hemisphere rugby on this You're hamming that accent up this week, Richard. I've, I've, <laughs> you weren't like uh, this last well, week. Well, he is going based on the current world rankings from world rugby, the global rankings of rugby teams, because I joke, and I don't take any interest in, in that kind of thing uh, and, and them kind of stats, but it's been a thing that's spoken about this week because New Zealand, uh, poor New Zealand, have dropped down to fourth. Not that that is necessarily a thing. Sam Kane mentioned it when he got interviewed this week ahead of the game. But in answer to your question, I think what's happening is, is there has been a real shift in terms of the quality of rugby that the Northern Hemisphere, not just in this series that we're seeing, obviously France are amazing at the minute. Uh, their game against Japan was, was, was wicked, even with um, France's more kind of second string team. But you guys down there have been leading the charge for so many years. Oh, not not all the time, but uh, as a whole. Not, not, well, maybe not you guys. But, in, <laughs> but I think you look at New Zealand, if we stick with them, the All Blacks has been the kind of beacon for every rugby team across the world, okay? And everyone raises their game to play them. But actually, when you think about the All Blacks, and you might think differently, 
they haven't been that successful over recent years. It's been South Africa. You know, you, you think about how successful South Africa have been from a Northern Hemisphere point of view with the Lions, with the World Cup final against England in 2019. So there's been a bit of smoke and mirrors around the All Blacks, but there's no doubt about it with the, you know, the Australian team. And I'm sure we'll get into it. I've got a couple of mates involved in the team now. But I think we realised here that we were getting left behind, the All Blacks left behind South Africa and... Australia's always been a rivalry for England specifically, uh, a team that Scotland have always done well against, actually. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. I love the banter. It's great that we're talking about North versus South now. And you mentioned about these series being at the beginning of your season. It's the back end of our season. It's been a long old season. So trying to judge where the teams are specifically on this series is difficult because the lads who are going that well, you've seen the amount of injuries that the England team have picked up as well as the Australian team. I know for different reasons, but they're limping, you know, in terms of the squad depths that they've got. But I love it. I think it's important for the growth of rugby, but I think it's class going into the World Cup without getting too far in front of ourselves that we've got a load of teams in the mix now that can potentially win it. And it isn't just all about New Zealand. It isn't all about South Africa. Would you have wanted to? Because you went and um, you went to Argentina on a bit of a mini tour. Would you have wanted to come down to Australia or New Zealand or uh, for a three-test series? Would that have whetted your appetite, or were you so tired after your your, your long season of playing club rugby? Would that have seen just an, an extra thing? But I know pulling on the thistle would, was obviously great privilege. But would you have wanted to come down and and, and play a three-test series? I don't know how much you followed my career, but I had the worst win percentage of any Northern Hemisphere rugby player out with Italy. That's that's so, why I was He's the stats of, man. He's, he's got that stat on his little run sheet. <laughs> Andy Good has reminded me of that. I wanted to drill down on the All Blacks a little bit. So I've seen some, some Kiwi punters say, um, when was the last time we lost without a red card? Um, you know, are the All Blacks... Are they back to the pack? Like, is are they legitimately back to the pack, or did they play with thirteen men, twelve men? Um, I watched the game. My view is that Sexton was on fire. Furlong was on fire. The the Irish boys gave it to them. I thought the red card was dog shit. I can get to that in a minute. Um, but what do you boys reckon? I, I, and what are you? If you rewind the clock um, a couple of years when Ireland was that really dominant team where they just conquered rugby for a sort of two, three-year period. Can, can I just There's a lot of bones way? of that team still in this team. Always the year before a World Cup. You'll have to see it. Yeah. I'll fuck it up yeah. next year Always, for sure. Just, just peaking too early. <laughs> um, but a lot of those bones, you talk about Sexton and Furlong um, under the Schmidt era, a lot of those bones are still in the team. They're still a very fucking good team, man. And you don't need to get an international side up for the fight. It, particularly in New Zealand, where it's any any momentum, any small victory is worth a thousand. Um, I think over even there. Um, even when you talk about beating New Zealand, it's not just about beating them on the on the park, but it's also it's the mental capacity of, of getting over the line because not many teams have done it, and and I know more are doing it in more recent times. But you know, in a single game, I don't think I'm ever going to really feel confident that the other team is going to beat New Zealand because they've got so many amazing individuals and they've got so many good processes in place that on any day, I still think New Zealand are going to be the best team and in the world. And can spin the most amazing play on a dime. That's what we've been used to. Or are they back to the pack and they're, they're dropping a couple games a year? Uh, what, what do you reckon, Jim? Oh, I think the thing is with the All Blacks, um, 
I love calling them the All Blacks. I don't like calling them New Zealand. I spent a year down there. I played a year down there in Marist Albion, Christchurch. Wow. Uh, when I was a young lad, Le- Leicester sent me there. And the basic skills, and again, I know you've not asked me that question, but I need to kind of reiterate around the basic skills, which sounds very simple, but not from a man who played for Scotland um, and we didn't win many games. Their catch pass, their tackling ability, their basic skills were so good that even when I was down there and the lad who was playing in the back row, who was, who was a labourer uh, down at a local building site, and I was like, mate, you get a professional contract if you came over to the UK. And I think with them, so many teams got left behind, right? And it probably comes down to your point where when the All Blacks play, you expect you think they're going to win. Doesn't matter where they are in mm. the game, you think they're going to win. And there has been a shift of late in the last couple of years. But when I played against the All Blacks or when I've watched them play, say we use the analogy of a, a six-gear car because we're now move, moving it. Well, there might be seven gears now. I don't know what the crack is with these modern cars. but Bit of spinal tap to 11. There we go. <laughs> Electric. It's all a fad. It's all, it's, all, it's all a fad up here. I don't know what it's like down there. But, but New Zealand, uh, in fourth gear, would beat teams comfortably, right? So you saw with Ireland in, in game one, or we've seen in years gone by, unless you're absolutely on the limit, you don't really stand the chance, both physically, emotionally, the individual skills that they've got. But I think now they're starting to creak a little bit, aren't they? Because you're hearing whispers especially up here around, is Foster the right man? That's what I want to know. You ju- mm. You're just a shit McCaw. I can give you some insight into that. I, I, I chat to Scotty Robertson while he's on holiday. Surely, Scotty Robertson. Um, Surely. It's a no-brainer from where I don't know. Surely he's the best breakdancing coach too. Yeah. I don't know what the win percentage is. This is the thing, right? I know. When you're at the top of your game, it's like Eddie Jones, right? So when, like, there's a stat. I was trying to dig it out for you, lads. Uh, I hate stats, but I thought I'd try and dig it out. Richard fucking loves it. He's yeah. all about stats, thanks, man. Thanks for that, Jim. You're supposed to be on my side. <laughs> His win percentage for England is one of the best. I don't know what Foster's is in terms of coaches gone by. I don't know what he's getting judged on. I mean, I imagine if you're the All Blacks coach, you're expected to win every game, right? But my point being now that the the... The, the gap has obviously become a lot smaller and teams, I mean, it shows you still need to be a hundred percent right. And Ireland showed that at the weekend because they were a hundred percent at the level of their game. Sexton was at the very top of his game. The decisions went the right way. And let's not forget New Zealand went down to 13 men That's and right. then they did they go down to 12. Well, they should have went down to 12 men at one point and they played the game with 14 men and they still looked all right. You know what I mean? Mm. So Ireland at their very, very best against the Olympian All Blacks team and the All Blacks still look very good. So in my eyes, I don't know why you'd try and get rid of Foster. I mean, he took Brad Barrett. Oh, uh, Brad Barrett. Um, there's probably a Brad Barrett. Brad, but, there's probably a Brad Barrett somewhere. Yeah, He's very it's, good. It's a, Barrett, it's a Barrett brother, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. I keep saying Brad Barrett, my, one of my best captains um, for Saracens in the centre. But you, you, you bring off Bowden Barrett at 10. And they're, they're the questions that people are asking. The fact that Omani's calling out Sam Kane as a shit Richie McCaw. Well, you know, <laughs> if you're a shit Richie McCaw or you're second best to Richie McCaw, you could still be the best player in the world right now. Mm. So there's obviously a few things going on in that all-black squad, but that's credit to them because they've been the best team consistently. I know South Africa won the World Cup, but they've been the best team consistently over, the, over our generation for sure. Yeah, mm. that's right. Can I say you went? With, you obviously came down here when you were when Leicester sent you down, and you said, and you you saw obviously all the processes that happened. Is that something that obviously in Scottish rugby, English rugby, etc., they could take hold of? Do you think there needs to be more emphasis on basic skills rather than that winning culture and to try and just win games at all cost? Do you think the the grassroots level needs to change to continue the growth of 
um, of rugby within Scotland, England, Ireland, etc. Well, people would think I'm mental when they say, when I came to New Zealand, they could all tackle, they, they could all catch and pass mm. off their left and right hand. But I, I played in a generation at Leicester where it was old school. All you had to do was fight. You'd enter a ruck with two feet. You know, you'd maybe enter it with a couple of closed fists and a head as well. It was like, and the, the, the basics of tackling and passing were secondary. So again, to my point, New Zealand were leading the charge on that. We all watched them, didn't we? When mm. they were in counter-attack or every single player, the way that they cleared out breakdowns, they've been doing it for years. Where, when I was at Saracens back in the day, you know, I retired five years ago. Three, so eight years ago, eight years ago was the point in which they started working on catch and pass under pressure. Eight years ago, that's it. Like we're talking about a professional outfit that was winning things, right? And there was not a huge amount of emphasis on the basic skills at the highest level. And not only it took a couple of years for it to click in a game against Toulon where Maka Vanapola and George Cruz started throwing out five, eight metre passes. It was revolutionary. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was like, my God, what's going on? But New Zealand were doing it for years. It's mental. It's mental to me. That, yeah. that, that isn't something. But but you can see it, right? And I think that's where the, the gap's closing. Um, tell us about being a professional rugby player. And, and even what's the difference between time in France and Montpellier? Is it all red wine and, and, cheese, and cheese and just... Snails. snails just getting yes. paid. Uh, or it, uh, yeah. as opposed to Saracens, <laughs> which is probably the opposite of those things. Yeah, so... There's about five questions in one, so I can hit you with 10 answers if you want um, around that. Being a professional rugby player, unbelievable. Like, I mean, rugby has given me not only um, a great life um, in terms of being able to bring up my kids and have a nice house and all these superficial things, right? But it's given me an unbelievable foundation to be a man and to be a dad and to be a good human because of the values that the game has. So without going too deep onto these things, rugby is one of these unique sports, right? Different to all other sports because the old cliche saying, all shapes and sizes can play the game. There's this perception that it's a public school sport. I know Australia, chatting to Drew Mitchell, has had a few issues with that kind of perception. Mate, we're, I, all, from a we're all public state. school teachers. Mm. It's it's distinctly the opposite in Australia. But what you've said... You've got you, a tattoo. You, How yeah. can you be a teacher with a tattoo? Cover it up, mate. Cover it up at work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I, but I think what you've said hits the nail on the head for all of our experiences with rugby. And you've done that at the professional level. It's taught you those values and those cultures. We've had that at the amateur level, whether whether it's through playing, coaching, or being a part of it, it. It is special in that in that field. So sorry, I won't interrupt again, but I think it's a really important point. No, it is, yeah. And interestingly, I was chatting not to bring my new show that I'm doing for the Rugby Pod, the Big Gym Show, by the way, but I interviewed Luke Pearce uh, this week, which is obviously very topical because of the refereeing situation that we find ourselves in, and we're all, we've all got an opinion on that. But one thing that we spoke about which we both agreed on him being the ref in the middle of some of the highest games. He'd be, you know, in the top five referees in the world. Me being a traditionalist, having played the game in an era where it kind of, there was a bit of amateur, professional, you could get pissed, you could go out midweek, you could do all these things. I think what is for sure now is there's a gulf, right, between your top internationals, your club rugby and your amateur clubs. I think we're all seeing that. I don't know whether it's the same in Australia, but for sure now, both from a social media, a profile, um, the, the lads don't go for a drink after the games in the clubhouse. 
Um, there's so many things down to the mix where that gap is getting bigger, which I quite like. There's a part of me, I think, for the growth of the game and for the athleticism coming in, I quite like seeing, you know, the superstars coming through where they're almost a little bit kind of untouchable, you know, like these basketballers. But I am a traditionalist. I love the fact that of years gone by, there weren't a huge difference between, like we'd all know someone or someone would know someone that's played, you know, for England or Australia or Scotland. And it's like, it should have been me. I could have been me. I didn't wreck my ankle, you know, if I would have got picked. Yeah, I'm pointing at you, lads. I can see you pointing at each other. Blake just And for, that just was for one of the reference. romances. <laughs> Blake got subbed. <laughs> By Vinavala. Um, you know, it was Ben Volavola. Yes. Who ended up playing for Fiji. At every 10. time he plays, every <laughs> mat I have texts me, could have been you. <laughs> it couldn't exactly. have. It could and have. that's, you know, that's across the world. Yeah, but we keep saying that, that it, it could have been. But I think now we're seeing a gap. But the, I think the romance of rugby has been that, you know, I look at Dave Parecki and I joked about him on the podcast that we did. Hopefully he wasn't offended. He couldn't hit for four barn doors when he was at Saracens. Do you know what I mean? He was like a fourth, fifth string hooker. Yeah. Um, and now he's playing for the Wallabies in test matches. So there still is an element of there's different pathways that players can get there. But, you know, rugby is an amazing sport, an amazing sport. Yes, there's a load of issues at the minute, obviously with the concussion stuff, which is obvious, glaringly obvious. We've all got an opinion because we've all got a phone and, you know, we can put it out on Twitter and hide behind that. But I think the fundamentals of the game are still there. And I think that that's where, you know, you're chatting to me over a few beers. You can have them discussions. You know, the the fact that it is sometimes so difficult to consume in terms of the rules and the laws, it, it makes for conversation. It makes for public opinion to to blow up. So... Yeah, can can I jump in on that? Sport. Which is, um, I concur entirely, right? Next weekend's basically a mini World Cup. Every game's a decider. It's effing brilliant, right? And we're on here talking about rugby, and that's great. But you've alluded to the laws. I've got to, I've got to probe a little bit further. Um, anyone who listens regularly knows my views. Um, I think we've lost the plot. Um, I would love to know from a, a player's perspective. So I guess I'll preface that with the. The knockdown rule is the most ridiculous law I've ever heard of. Uh, and, and I was watching, to give you a reference, rugby is struggling in Australia. Like, it, it really is. I was watching the game on the weekend with people who, who aren't rugby fans who were telling me about 2003 and Wilco's kick was the last time they tuned in. They were watching what the happened? game. All right. They were watching the game and, and, and they were interested. And as soon as... Uh, the yellow card for Preece went. Well, that was it. Half the people left the room. This sport's a joke. Is the rugby league on? Um, let's move on with it. So I'll preface with I think that rule's a joke, uh, but I'll also sort of uh, wedge my way into the, the cards with the concussion rules. I think all of us would agree we, we want to protect players, but have we thrown the baby out with bathwater? From, from a player's perspective, you, you talk to players, you know them, you, you were playing recently. What do you reckon? Right, well, there's two very good questions there and good points, both completely different ends of the spectrum when you talk about cards and stuff like that. So we'll start on the Parise Yellow because it's so interesting here you give your views on that. I went back on YouTube and just had a look at the highlights to see what the Stan Sport guys or whoever was airing it down there for you, what their take was on some of the big moments compared to what our take on Sky Sports would have been in the UK. And it's hilarious because they're the complete opposite. 
And you mentioned the Parise one going for the intercept. In our view now, because it may be because in the club game here, it's it's pushed so hard and it's become so obvious. The minute you go with only one hand and it's a knock-on, it's a yellow card. As in, th- th- there is no grey area down here now for that. But the Stan Sports guy, oh, you know, he could have flicked, you know, it's instinctive. All these things that we went through three years ago, like we were saying... It's you know Marcus Smith, for example, should his card that was even worse, mind you. I reckon that was even worse than the yellow card. But but for me, because I know that the framework and what's been happening over the last few years, as soon as I see that, it's a yellow card because of what's gone by. But from your point in terms of viewership, and not to keep pointing people back to my interview with Luke Pearce, but because he's one of the best referees in the world. We spoke about these things. We spoke about stuff that's happening on the pitch, the TMO influence, you know, how long things are taking, obviously the head collisions, which is the most difficult one to migrate through at the weekend. But you can understand as a casual fan, right? If your mates are you're with a group of mates and the last game that they saw was Johnny Wilkinson's <laughs> drop goal going over and they didn't want to watch rugby again. You can understand why that's the case. You can understand understand why they're still hurting. But you're looking at it and the game's difficult enough to consume already because of the scrums, because of the breakdown, who's got... That's why I love watching rugby league and the state of origins just around the corner because it's, in a way, it's like football. You, it, like, as in, you can have half an eye on the game and you know what's happening. Someone else yeah. is monstering someone else. You get five opportunities to do it. There's a bit of kicking and you've got to get the ball over that. Don't drop it. Make sure you dive on the ball. In football, get the ball in there. Get the ball in there. You can't be offside. Done. Jobs are good. Done. Whereas in rugby, there's so many, what? Well, yeah, well, he's, only, he's just gone. Paris has just gone for the ball. Marcus Smith's just gone for the ball. The same as, as Bowden Barrett, but he caught like... So you, and then you're having to stop and try and explain it. It takes out the enjoyment factor. It becomes so confusing. And that's just one thing. Like we could sit here and talk about another thing where players are going for the ball, but he was on his elbow, but he got away with it because he was so quick or, do you know what I mean? That scrum's gone down and like he's on the floor. There's just so, there's so many things that we can go through, which is the shame. And I think chatting to Luke Pierce is they're well aware of that, right? Uh, I don't think that that one will change. Unfortunately, I think that they're big on that intercept one. I kind of, like, I think if you're going for a genuine intercept and you touch it with one hand and, and the movement is your hand going up to try and catch it, because Parisi has gone to catch it, has he? Well, he, he's thrown it all in. You know, Marcus Smith's a bit different because really you could say it was going to be a line break. I don't think Marcus Smith would have went through, but Parisi with his speed and stuff like that and the mechanism of it, it was a do or die yeah, was. kind of option for him. So... That's what I mean. But the big one, as you've just said, and we can go through a number of the ones and the ones that the referees are really struggling with and the public opinion and the concussion debates that are going up here. We've seen the big shift in the teams. You know, obviously Maratoji's not playing. Sam of the Hill is not going to be playing. Tom Curry's been sent home um, already with the concussion stuff. Is That is the stuff because no one wants to put their head, no pun intended, above the parapet and talk about whether or not that should have been a red card. Obviously, uh, Angus uh, Ta'avu. That's how you say it, don't you? Mm-hmm. Doing great. Great. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Make sure I get the pronunciations <laughs> completely clear. <laughs> my mate will pick me up on that. You said it wrong. Um, but the one, the big one in that kind of New Zealand Island game, and I tweeted it, and you should have seen the comments come back. They're, they're mixed. They're angry. They're divisive. They're rude. 
And there's ones like that where that for me is a rugby incident. There's no, and I know, as it goes back to your question, I have been there on the pitch, right, to adjust as a defender, he's just come on, to adjust as a tight head prop at speed with a guy coming back on a switch like Ring Rose, it ain't happening. So the only thing that he could have done there is stood his ground, he probably would have got knocked out anyway. Um, but the minute you start talking about that, everything comes down to the player welfare, which is rightly so because rugby's going through a tough time, as is rugby league down there as well. And I know there's stuff happening down in Australia, chatting to Drew Mitchell last week about it. And also the referees are trying to, they don't want to give red cards. And you could see that with the way the referees are talking like, oh, you know, I, I, I don't really want to give you it. But unfortunately with the framework, it, it, it's a red card. Uh, the teams are aware of it. They're talking about it. You listen to the in, the guys interviewing Dave Rennie after the match. Oh, what do you what do you think of the ref? You know they're looking for something because people want something to point at. It's not necessarily just the referees. I think it's a collective approach and the fact that you guys do a podcast, I do a podcast. There's a load of other podcasts now. Some good, some bad. You know, some <laughs> opinionated, some haven't got a clue. But everyone can have an opinion, and that's the issue that they've got. Yeah, I ain't got a clue either. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I know I'm not answering your question, but I know it's frustrating in terms of the growth of the game. And when you sat, sat there with mates and you're trying to explain it. I think you're right because with the whole the ref, what do you think of the ref? But the ref, there's no real impulsive decisions made by them. All of that is so fucking clear and cut for them to go through all their checklist. This is where the result I've ended up. All of them agree. It's not necessarily got anything to do with the ref. The problems with the checklist on my end, which is gives the ref no room for common sense to call it a rugby incident. So it's interesting though. You say that because again, I don't know if I told you that I spoke to Luke Pearce. <laughs> no, we've got um, Andrew. So, Andrew Mitchell last week. Was, what, what, was, that on your, was that on your podcast, Jim? <laughs> yeah, the big gym show. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, the we big can get gym show. The yeah, we're gym. right. The, the listenership still is actually all right at the minute, but in case it does drop and you lads take over, then I just need to get it in there early. But it's interesting you say that because I said the same thing to him. I said, it seems like there's a clear framework. You've got the TMO in your ear, who he said to me has now got a bigger voice. As a referee, they can potentially hide behind the TMO and just say to the players, oh, look, the TMO's made the decision. And he said, it's a bit it's big brother, isn't, isn't it? it? It's the big brother. It is, but it's also the point he said, he said, it's subjective. He said, because... When there is, he said before, it was so easy. I say before, three years ago when they brought in the new the framework, if you were high as a tackler and there was head contact, it was a red card. It was a red card, full stop. There was no question marks. That was it. Whereas now, as time has gone by, they've brought in mitigation. They've brought in a load of different things, force, um, how the player falls. And the minute you bring in subjectivity or you bring in a grey area, that's where it becomes unclear. And that is what he was saying. He said, that is where it's now. It's difficult because there was a red card, sorry, there was a yellow card in the premiership final. A guy called Alan Davis uh, made a really high shot on Julian Montoya, the Argentinian captain playing for Leicester. Fucking smashed him with his head, straight in his face. All of us on Twitter, everyone's blowing up. It's a red card. He gets yellow carded, right, by Wayne Barnes, who's refereeing uh, the New Zealand Island game at the weekend. Yellow card, Luke Pearce. You've got two of the best referees in the world. Luke Pearce is running the touch. Luke Pearce radios in and says, oh, mate, it's a yellow, only a yellow. Um, Alan Davis doesn't move forward when the collision hits. We're all on Twitter, mate. This is a red card. What are you talking about? Retrospectively, he gets red carded and gets a three-week ban. So I'm saying to Luke, as a referee, like you're making a completely different opinion to 
the masses on Twitter, who most of us haven't got a clue, but we've all got an opinion. And then retrospectively, it's a red card. So you made the wrong decision. And he said, that is the hard thing because you're in, he said, it, at home, you've got all the different angles. There's no emotion. Like he, There's plenty. He just said, and that's part of the grey area. And I said, well, there is a lot of emotion, yeah, uh, especially when the big games come around. I wish they would, uh, and last thing on the cards, we can press on and talk about many other interesting things. But I guess my whinge is that... Um, we should. It just takes the competition away once there's a player off the park. I'm fine for suspensions. I'm fine for fines. Not my money. Uh, I'm fine for suspensions and those things post game. But it just sucks when it it takes the competition fifteen on fifteen off. And and you've got three of the top world coaches this weekend speaking out about it. It worries me for a World Cup next year when when three of the top. There'll be a change. I think you could see a change. I think for the World Cup, with everything that we're seeing now, I think whether or not it comes around quick enough for the World Cup and there's a big push, let's just call it an orange card. I don't know what people are calling it down there, which is, and let, and it, it needs to be unless. And I think you've trialled it down there. Yeah, no, right. no, no. red card with the it's 20 been, It's been great. You blokes at the North hate it. Um, down here, it's been great. Yeah, but, because from where I'm sitting, yeah. red card is you punch someone in the face. You've, you've headbutted someone. Um, yeah, I know, we know you've done that, Jim. Um, that's <laughs> yeah. a red card, right? But but an incidental rugby collision, protect the player, that's where the 20-minute red card seems to make sense to me. Keep the spectacle. I think they might do it. Yeah, I think they might do it. I don't know, um, but I think they have to look at that. Like you look at the one from the game at the weekend, um, you know, Darcy Swain might argue that that should have been an orange card or whatever, obviously. Everyone else disagrees, but the way that he came off the pitch was like he was confused by what had happened. Yeah, I know. Um, but that, I think the rugby instances like that, that's the only way forward, in my opinion, especially when you're talking about, you know, that's obviously a big game. The All Blacks Island game is a big game. In the context of a World Cup and winning something, no disrespect to the tournament now, winning something huge, it doesn't really matter. But if that's in a World Cup final, right? You know, the referee is going to have to make a huge call in what is a grey area, subjective around body height, around mitigation, about all these things, about who wins the collision. But again, I hate using this kind of term hiding, but they can hide behind the fact or use the fact or lean on the fact that they can red card them, but they know in 10, 20 minutes or whatever they decide to go down, that the game isn't over, that they're going to get someone back on, just not that specific player. So I personally think there'll be a change. But again, it's an ever-changing landscape. And the number one thing that they keep talking about and everyone's speaking about is player health. And you look at that collision at the weekend, like it's nasty, you know? But it's an accident, mm. but it's nasty. And uh, that's what they're trying to encourage. But the- Unavoidable. It's a contact sport that's played from multiple angles. It's it's unavoidable. Do you, um, I could definitely guarantee that you're the only one in here that actually has the balls to be able to do this on the rugby pitch with definitely wimps. But do you think you, that you would have had to have changed the way that you play if you were to play now as opposed to what you did, you know, five, ten years ago? Absolutely. I was I was better at the end of my career because mm. the game was moving forward quickly. Already quickened up, yeah. It already quickened up. There was more cameras. There was more TMOs. And the game was less dirty mm-hmm. so if you say 10 years ago there was a big shift like mm-hmm. I'd go into games and I joked about it you'd go into breakdowns with two feet mm-hmm. you'd go in with closed arms you'd go in to hurt people yeah. you'd speak about hurting players before the game mm-hmm. that was it I'm going to F him up 
I don't know if you can swear on here because if your teachers, the, nah, the teachers oh, yeah, yeah, that was it before. You, you go for it, mate. You can fuck them up. Like yeah. that was it. You, you, and and they, these words were used before the game. You know, you fucking do a job on your opposite man. The way that so even vocally how you spoke. And I saw Genji and and uh, your lad having a pop at each other in the lead up to the game. That's great. Like I love a little bit of that. But ten years, I say ten years ago, fifteen years ago when I started at Leicester. It was about punching people. It was about that them kind of things. And then towards the end of my career, it shifted. The big thing where I would have struggled, and we've seen, take the Barbarians incident out with Will Skelton, who I played with at Saracens, is I'm six foot eight, six foot nine with heels, and I tackled high. Just and people are like, yeah, well, you know, you can practice to get lower. I just always tackled high. You look at Courtney Laws; he always tackles low. So personally, I would have, I'd, I would struggle with some of the collisions, the way that I would enter a breakdown. You could argue with say I entered it like the All Blacks, not all the time, but I'd fly in, basically. I felt like I was going at high speed, but looking back at the games, it was fairly slow. But from my point of view, it was high speed. So <laughs> From a punter, but I love that shit. I love those players, mm. the enforcers. Mm. Self-proclaimed. and that, But a lot of it is grabbing. That was the thing that I, I was like a little bit embarrassed with is watching Darcy Swain and Johnny Hill what they were doing. It was like, you had two young pups trying to be like, I don't know, because the enforcer's dead now. Mm, so it's like, it? what are you doing, lads? Like you're pulling each other's air, you're pushing each other. And then you could see that Darcy's never headbutted another human being in his life. No. Because <laughs> like the length that he had to put on the head, the length, you know, I thought he was going to, when I saw too it Too much coming, UFC. Like, <laughs> yeah. But I was like, is this guy a giraffe? Has he got a longer neck than we think? Because as you saw the slow-mo, you're like, well, go on then. And then that was it. It just stopped. It was like, you just literally just... If you're going to get the red card, at least make it something. Go out in a blaze of glory. So he didn't, unfortunately for him, and he was baffled. But yeah, I mean, look, the game has moved on now significantly. I, I think it's... I, I love watching it. Everyone talks about the collisions and stuff. The big thing is the amount of games the players are playing. You know, game on game on game. I mentioned the length of the season that they've had. But yeah, you see the bigger guys. The, well, the first red card in the English Premiership was a guy called Will Spencer. Was a second row. He was a, an adjusting defender, and it, and the, the head of another player hit him on the shoulder. He got red card and got like a six to eight week ban. And we were all baffled. I was like, well, that was players every week. Yeah. So I think we, we again we're, we're in a grey area, lads, mm. and that's not a good place to be. Talking of what is not a grey area, I listened to your podcast the other day with Drew Mitchell. I actually was really enjoyed listening to it. What I loved about the fact was Drew Mitchell was crowing the fact that it was going to be a 3-0 whitewash. And he said that he was going to take you out for dinner if uh, uh, if uh, if he was wrong. So have you have you planned? Because I think England beat Australia at the weekend. Is that I, right? I, I, mate, I'm not sure. I turned yeah, it I off just, after just, the pre-say yellow. Yeah, just, just what a cope. So have you decided where you're going for dinner yet and what you're going to have? Drew could surely afford a few. He, he can afford it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I think he can. Well, firstly, I just looked on social media before I jumped on the podcast with you. You know he's put out his singing the national anthem oh, in his buddy smugglers in England top. Breaking news. Breaking news. <laughs> so it's out there. <laughs> it's out. So he's he's done it. And it, it, there's a, a decent old edit. There's a few. He's outside the stadium. He's down by the harbour. So some, he's got a film crew with him. So he's gone and done that. That was his bet with Joe Marler if... England were to win the second test, then Drew would do that. He was that confident that it was 3-0. I mean, I don't know how I got forced into it because I weren't bothered either way who won. Uh, but anyway, I, I just put my name to it and said if England won 
he was going to take me out for dinner in France or Greece when he's over in Europe. And I texted him and said, look, mate, there's this unbelievable French restaurant in Paris. It's one of the top two restaurants in the world. I think it's about 85 euros for a fillet steak or a cote de bouffe, as they like to call it in France. And I've not heard back. So he's obviously working his way through the social. Yeah. Take you back to the top 14 days, that, wouldn't you? That's pre-season. That's middle of the week, getting ready for the game. <laughs> Hit the French restaurants. Exactly. <laughs> Cigarette in hand. <laughs> was was playing um was playing in France as because so, you know obviously I know you left your contract early enough something to come back to with Saris. Was it because we all think you know all these Aussie players going over there they're going to earn lots of money they they eulogise about how great the experience is. Obviously you, did, you probably didn't experience that yourself or did you just miss the Premiership and and the the physicality or what was it really? It was tough. I uh, went to Montpellier and I say tough, like get the violin out. I mean, tough in terms of it was a big <laughs> shift from, I was I was captain at Gloucester. Uh, I was in my prime. It was on the, um, around the British and Irish Lions 2013, which was to Australia, I think. Um, got told I was going and then Paul O'Connell, miraculous recovery. Uh, I don't even know who he was at the time. He was just this average player playing for Ireland, got caught up in front of me. <laughs> and I ended up in Montpellier and there was a number of reasons why. One was the money. I got offered a three-year deal. This is when they were throwing big money around for self-proclaimed enforcers. Uh, they had Fabian Gautier as the head coach. They had a number of sign-ins, Vinan Olivier, the South African centre, Rennie Ranger when he was carving up for the All Blacks uh, and myself. So we went there. The start of it was great. <laughs> you know, nice house with a, with a villa. Um, so a nice villa with a pool. Harley Davison on the drive the sun, the beach, everything seemed primed to be amazing. And then Fabian Gautier started shouting at us all in, Fr in French. And after game three or four, we'd won two, lost one and drawn one. And I was, it, it wasn't just that he was shouting after game four, the physio was so poor, uh, the, the nutrition element, the professionalism, all the horror stories that you hear away from home. Um, it just didn't suit the way that I saw the game. I was in my prime. I think that that was the part of it. I missed out on that Lions tour. I felt like I had so much to give, but I felt like I was at a team, yes, that were paying well. Yes, they had some superstars, but they weren't that bothered. Do you know what I mean? Rennie Ranger was there, cigarette in his mm. mouth, like legend of a bloke. And he was just like, as long as we're getting paid, uh, as long as we're getting paid, it doesn't matter. Seated Tamani as well, the uh, Australian second row. I was there with him. And um, Saracens came knocking just randomly because the CEO was over trying to get Juan Figolo, the Argentinian tight end. And I opened the door and he said, we're looking for Juan Figolo. We want him to come to Saracens. Actually, we need the second row. And the wheels were already falling off at Montpellier after this first season with Fabian. And they had Mohed Altred, who, as we know, is a phenomenal uh, investor into rugby with Montpellier. He's a sponsor on the back of the All Blacks jersey as well. He sponsors the French team. And I, yeah, it lasted a year. Um, in hindsight, I wish I gave it a little bit longer. Um, you know, the culture is very different. It takes a while for people to kind of embed in that, probably two or three years. But the opportunity to go to a club like Saracens and all the whispers that you heard around how they treated the players well. It had nothing to do with money or salary cap. But the, the way that they treated players and my appetite to win things, I've played 10 years for Scotland and we won very little. We nearly won the wooden spoon a couple of times. But apart from that, it was um, 
yeah, it, it was the opportunity to go to Saracen. So in hindsight, I wish I stayed at, in France and gave it a bit longer, but I had the best three years of my life at Saracens. So it was been um, strange playing it there with Saracens, the, the, the Galacticos of the uh, of the, the Premiership, you know, and in, in that time you're playing on the plastic pitch up there. It was all like, oh, it must have been a, a strange experience, but a hugely rewarding one as well, because that was where you spent the most amount of your time there. So, you know, obviously Leicester being your first club, but Saracens, you must have embedded yourself in the, the culture and, and learned a lot whilst you played there because there were some top-class players there at the time. There was, and they've been through a tough time. I don't know whether you want to touch on that with the salary cap and stuff that they've been through. They got relegated. Absolutely. Yeah, why not? Well, I was involved in all that because, <laughs> I, you know, there was this talk of me being heavily involved. I was being brought up in the newspapers. And I was happy at the beginning because I was like, look, I'm getting brought into this fold with a Galactico team, and my name's been thrown about that I'm involved in this. So... But then as it materialised, it kind of got a little bit worse and we saw they got relegated, got, you know, five and mm. a half million pound fine and a little bit of their legacy was was lost during that time. And I was involved heavily in the team and the squad around them. But in answer to you, kind of the first part of it around playing with them players, the plastic pitch, they were trailblazers, right? If when players scored mm. a try, they'd choose a tune and it'd get blared out over the speakers. They weren't a huge fan base, North London, a uh, very football heavy community so well, prior to that being sorry to interrupt but prior to that no one went to Watford no one went to, to Watford to go uh, when they were based there so it no. was the start of a new era it was uh, it was amazing what was going to happen yeah and one thing that I realized and people still hate it when I say it because it's easy to say when you're winning things it's easy to say people first when you've got an endless pot of money and you've got a, a blank checkbook but I genuinely felt when I was there out of all the places I've ever been, people speak about culture, speak, people speak about treating people right, and it's lip service. Even when I was in Montpellier, it was like Fabian Gautier was telling people that, and I was like, mate, this is bollocks, like, you're lying, like, this, you're not, you're speaking to people like dogs, like, it isn't, like, this isn't, what you're trying to say the culture is, isn't deep-rooted, whereas at Saracens, it was deep-rooted. There was a genuine care, not just for me, but for the family, um, for for the kids, for the wider staff, for the community, and it was real. And I've been in places, I've, I've travelled all over the world, so you know when something's not real and, and whatever. And I remember getting there my first year and they, they'd lost the Premiership final to a controversial decision against Northampton, a pick-and-go try that wasn't a try, and they got heavily beaten by Toulon. So they won nothing. The year I got there, they lost both finals. And I remember thinking... So just oh, to God, confirm, when you arrived the trophy started to rain in. So correlation leads to causation that you are the main reason why success came about, yes? I think that is why I was brought into this fold around the salary cap scandal. <laughs> the so, enforcer. The all enforcer, changed. right? Self-proclaimed enforcer, and it all changed. That's a fascinating fascinating insight, though. Of I think but, it's, but, it's, yeah. it's clear from the way you're talking, though, that, that culture and buy-in is authentic and it's real, and, mm. and it's either there or it isn't. But the thing is as well, the beauty with that, the beauty with that buy-in or not, whether, like, I think all cultures right, are manufactured. Of course they are. It's sport, isn't it? Like it isn't, mm, yeah. like, people are going to come and go. So the loyalty, the deep-rooted loyalty, unless they're going to pay you until you die or they're going to look after you till you die, the loyalty is there when you're there. So for, in my opinion, it is, every culture is manufactured, right? But mm. for there, and there's a few reasons why, we believe like you felt it the, before I'd even touched a rugby ball, the way that I was treated, the way that my family were treated, I felt guilty that I hadn't played yet, even though there wasn't a game. 
because of how I'd been treated that I wanted to play for the coaches. I wanted to play for the staff because they treated me so well. And whether or not that's a bit smoke and mirrors, well, if it is, it's genius because anyone that's been there. Sometimes, sometimes I think as a non-professional outside of culture building, what, what makes a coach when it comes to training sessions and strategy for the game, like there's finite things that they can decide and pick on. And it's usually the result of a, of a team meeting or a, or a coach meeting, but what separates great coaches from coaches or what separates great teams from teams um, is the leadership qualities of those coaches and their ability to rally troops, to create a culture, to sustain a culture over a significant amount of years. Like that's what great coaches are really getting paid for. Everything else is just like we were talking about earlier. It's just mastering basics and how important that is lately. Like mm. tell me if I'm wrong, but technically all professional coaches would be really, really good at that. What drills, what strategies that suit our strengths would be awesome, but not every team has a leader. Not every team has a great culture. It's the player, man. It's the management of people, the emotional intelligence of getting the very best out of people. You think how much life has changed now and people can be who they want to be. Everyone can have a voice. You go back to 15 years. I remember one of the young lads when I was at Leicester broke his leg fucking get up that's you know you get like a little tap in the backside get up off the floor you, you soft you soft lad whereas like now we're at the opposite end of the spectrum where you can't speak to people that like that right but at Saracens in my time there there was an emotional intelligence around understanding different people we had South Africans there and there was a really interesting thing that we did after we lost three games in a row and you speak about emotional intelligence we had Owen Farrell in the team and we had scalp Brits two polar opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of emotionally how they dealt with people. And one of the things they constantly tried to work on was the relationships between players and understanding that when you got on the pitch, Owen Farrell just wanted to win. He didn't care about how your kids were doing or, you know what I mean, how's the missus while she's pregnant. Whereas Scott Brits didn't, like, he was like, if we win, we win. But actually, how are you? How's the missus? How are the kids? What are you up to? And he'd come out on the pitch, he's got his coffee, he's got his slippers on and run back in the change room and get his, I've, I've left my boots in the changing room. And it was having that understanding of different people. And they just got it, they didn't, they didn't get it right. They understood that they had to get it right. Because if you knew what motivated each other at any given moment, well, therefore, you'd understand the person better because not every single player on that pitch is desperate to win a premiership or is desperate to win Europe. Some want to get paid. Some want to have experiences. Some just want to have a crack. Some are playing just because they're freak athletes, not because they love playing rugby. And I think what they managed to, in my time there, where we won two European trophies and two premierships, was they they would, did everything that they could to try and, and manage people's emotions and what motivated them. And then lastly on it, there was a chain of command. So we had Mark McCall at the helm. And then I'm looking at you three lads here, that's what it was like. So you had Mark McCall and then you had the three lads or four lads as the coaches. And the coaches there were your mates. So you could interact, you could have a moan, you could have, you know, you could, you could say, oh, you know, I, I've been dropped. I'm not feeling happy about this. Why am I not playing at the weekend? And they're like, no, no, no. The layer above is making the decision on whether you play or not. I'm here to make you better. I'm here to, you know, I'm the same as you. And it was the respect that you had for the coaches that they would work unbelievably hard for you. But again, I hate using the phrase, they could hide behind the fact that they weren't the decision makers on the team. They had input, 
but there was a boss. They had their boss that they were accountable to. And it just worked. It was just the time in sport where it worked and time in my life that it worked. I love that. I love mm. that unique sort of personalities. And, and um, I, I know whose team I'd rather be in. The slippers and the coffee sound much nicer. Or Randy Ranger with the dart sounds lovely. Um, but Eddie Jones came out this week and said Owen Farrell is the toughest competitor he's ever coached. Um, and, you know, from Eddie, that's pretty strong words. Uh, he said even tougher than George Gregan. Um What's Owen Farrell like? Is that true? From what you've just described, it sounds to be the case. Uh, well, I mean, it's a big statement by Eddie Jones. I, I saw the statement. Uh, obviously, a big fan of. Uh, it, it was George Gregan, right? Yeah, that yeah. He said. I think so. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I think is it George Gregan or it was? Yeah, it wasn't George Smith, was it? He's obviously a bit loose. Which I think is I think George Smith well. is a bit loose from what I've heard. Mm. I think it was George Gregan. Yeah, but he's obviously one of the great. He's one of the greats as well. Uh, George Gregan was in my bar in London. Actually, I just saw it pop up on social media. Big shout out to Wolfpack. Um, I imagine Eddie Jones and Owen Farrell are very very similar in terms of their personality, deep rooted. I struggled with Owen a little bit. We were very different in terms of our personality. You have to look back to an incident that happened in the British and Irish Lions game against the Barbarians in Hong Kong before they came down to you, lads, where scout Brits ended up punching Owen Farrell in the game. We're talking about a Barbarians game, right? <laughs> where a Barbarian, where a Barbarian, has put, well, I suppose with a name like a Barbarian for the casual fans listening, is an invitational team where the lads are there to have a bit of fun, has punched Owen Farrell, one of the highest profile players and been simbined in the game by Wayne Barnes. So you could see that there's obviously a bit of history there between how they view life and view the game. And I was very similar with Owen. Was that the game that you played in, the Barbies game in Hong Kong? Yeah, where it was about 100 degrees. And we thought the game was... We took what was called a sky gamble the night before, thinking the game was going to get called off because it was too hot and it went ahead. So <laughs> I blame Sergio Parise. My last memory was smoking a camel outside the hotel at three in the morning asking Sergio whether the game is definitely going ahead. And he just said, we. I said, are you sure? He says, yes, Jimbo, the game will go ahead. And then we had 50 points put on us because the humidity was unbearable. But on the point about Owen, I flip-flop back and forth on trying to understand him because he was, he's, again, without drawing comparisons to Michael Jordan, but the doc that went out, I don't know if you saw it, the, yeah, the last dance, yeah. it came out during COVID. Everyone's watched it, everyone's talking about it. Just had it. a baby then, so I watched every episode. If you haven't watched that, you need to watch that because that probably gives you a bit of insight into individuals in team sports that are that driven that they'll do anything and they almost transcend the team. And there's a bit of dislike around that, isn't there, in terms of rugby, which is the ultimate team sport, that it is a team sport, that everyone's the same, and it goes back to my point without contradicting myself in years gone by, is that the game's evolved now. You need superstars. You need individuals. And Owen Farrell's an individual. He wasn't a huge team man. His work on, so I, I always say this, my big work on was catch and pass and tackle, getting faster, um, becoming more supple, less di uh, my discipline needed to be better. So I had like 10 things I needed to get better. Owen Farrell's biggest thing that you need to be better at was emotional intelligence and empathy towards his teammates, right? So whereas we look at that and you'd be like, oh, you know, it ain't good enough by Owen. He's shouting at the players and stuff like that. He had one thing to work on. Everyone else had 10 things to work on. So I wish back then I had an understanding more around the, the social, emotional element of him trying to become better in that sense because he was an individual. 
And we were in a team, Saracens, which was all about love and it didn't really matter about winning, it was about the people. And then you've got the black sheep on the outskirts who didn't care about all that fluffy stuff. He just wanted to win. Mm. So Eddie Jones is right when he says he's the ultimate competitor. Like he absolutely is. You, you only have to have a look at his form over the last year. And he's picked up a couple of nasty injuries. Um, the media have been all over him. England haven't done that well. He was made captain. Marcus Smith, the big shining light has come through. Oh, Owen Farrell, his career's over. You only have to have a look at how he came back at the end of the season. He was phenomenal. Mm both from a leadership standpoint, but also the way that he'd managed to evolve his game, his offloading, his ability in attack, the work on obviously around the tackle area. I would be in Eddie's camp and say, you know, I've not worked with a Richie McCaw, I've not worked with a, a George Gregan. You know, I've worked with the likes of Martin Johnson and stuff like that. The game was different then. But in terms of Eddie Jones's statements and watching Owen Farrell develop, I think he would be one of the most ultimate competitors. Look at his dad, for God's sake. His dad is one of the best rugby players of both cross, both uh, union and league. He's one of the best players to have ever played the game, ever. Yeah. He's your dad, and he's coaching Ireland. Do you know what I mean? So he's going to be a competitor, isn't he? But he is a bit of a phenomenon. I've got a huge amount of respect for Owen Farrell, and rugby in England are better with him in it. Talking of uh, the, the strongest or the best player, um, back in your day it would have been, as you said, you talked about having a beer afterwards. Who was the best person to have a beer with afterwards? Oh, God. There was many. There was, uh, Who was good value? Yeah, you don't need to go the best. There's too much yeah. pressure. Who was so, good value? Who would you have a good time with? Oh, we had a guy called Alan Jacobson, uh, a.k.a. Chunk. I know you've heard of him. <laughs> uh, loose head shop Chunk. in Scotland. Um, Always a loose head He prop. was... He was, yeah, he was going AWOL uh, for a lot of the games. And we played a World Cup uh, in New Zealand in 2011. And I'll speed through the initial part of the stories. We scraped through Romania and Georgia. The two big games in our pools were Argentina and Wellington. And then we had England in the final game in Auckland. So we lost to Argentina. We got robbed by Wayne Barnes. Contopomi was about 20 metres offside and a last-minute drop goal. We, we should have got a penalty. We would have won the game. But we had to beat England in the final game to qualify. And uh, I was in a room, I, I injured my knee. I was in a room with Alan Jacobson when we got up to Auckland. Gone, like disappeared. So we go down to the, the team room and uh, they're obviously looking at me. They're like, Jim, where's Chunk? I'm like, well, he's not, he's not in the room. And then one of the lads comes and whispers in me and said, oh, he's, he's rocked up in my room. I was like, well, I'm injured. So I limp back up and go and go. I go into one of the lads' room and he's like unresponsive in his bed. And, uh, you know, I saw myself as a bit of a kind of paramedic and, you know, I'd look after the boys. <laughs> All the qualifications, like I'm sure. <laughs> PhD. <laughs> um, rolled him out of bed. He's not moving. I saw this thing on um, AR uh, or AE, whatever they call it, these ambulance programs in the UK. So I start rubbing his chest, just the sternum rub. <laughs> he ain't flinching, right? He's not moving at all. So I run down to the team room. I, th I say to the, the famous doctor, James Robson, the British and Irish Lion, Scotland doctor, he's a legend. I was like, mate, I think... Something's wrong with Chunk. I've tried waking him up, throwing water on him. Like he had fake teeth, so he might have swallowed his teeth. Um, so next thing, James Robson comes up. He's got the defibrillator on his back, uh, and he's he's in the room, and we're wiring Chunk up. He's got the sternum rub. He's not moving. And next thing, as we put the defibrillator on him, he just jumps up, and he's like, you know, what time's training? We're like, next team, we're playing England. We're playing. We're playing England tomorrow, and uh, we end up playing against England. And he has the best game I have ever seen a prop have. Ever. He lost his teeth that night, so he had no teeth. He had no teeth, no gum shield. 
And I remember after the game, we got beaten by England, but we nearly beat them, actually, which was the story of my history of playing for Scotland. We nearly beat them. And I remember being in the changing rooms and he was bright red, his eyes were white. And I remember tapping him on his back and his shirt was drenched. I was like, Chunk, he's like, oh, can he see? How can he see? He's like, what happened? I said, mate, we're out. We're out. He said, I know we're going out. I know we're going out. But like, did we win the game? I'm like, no, no, we're out of the World Cup. Like, we're out. And then the way that it goes at the World Cups, you get staggered, you get flown out quite quickly. It's quite ruthless. So that was the Saturday night. Sunday night, I'm out of there. So all day or on the Sunday, I get called. You've, you're on this next flight. You're with Chunk. No, Chunk's nowhere to be seen. I'm home for two weeks. And Mrs. Chunk, Mrs. Chunk rings Mrs. Hamilton. He's like, have you seen Chunk? Is Jim home yet? And he's like, yeah, Jim's been home for two weeks. And Mrs. Chunk um, is like, well... He's not home. He's not home. He stayed in New Zealand for two weeks. And now Mrs. Chunk is no longer Mrs. Chunk. And, uh, I know he's one of them lads where he was like the ultimate kind of, he got it, you know, he bridged the kind of amateur professional. He really bought like into that, that Montpellier um, culture, didn't he? <laughs> he did. He would have thrived there. I don't know whether they would have signed him with no teeth. They might have been a bit worried, but um, no, he was, he was a legend and there was a few more of them. Oh, yes. My follow-up question is, does rugby have a drinking culture problem? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> next question, which is a purely self-indulgent one. Uh, this Jim and I were taught by Dan Parks when we went to school. Did you get to play with him? I played with Parks. He, he used to do the late arrivals at school. And he used to have to present quite strongly because you're late to school, right? But he, he was he so didn't soft. Give a shit, he mate. was so soft. <laughs> so what was he like as a player? Oh, I bet he was abysmal. <laughs> <laughs> no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He was one of the players. <laughs> he played for our club too, yeah, didn't he? I mean, you t a legend of a bloke, an absolute legend of a bloke. When you mentioned Dan Parks, you smile. And I, I always felt bad for Parksy as well because – for whatever reason, and maybe it's because of the era that we played in, that the, the Scottish public gave him some shit, right? As in he got booed when he came off the pitch once playing for Scotland, which was unheard of really in the, the whole hashtag rugby values. Parksy for me won us some of the biggest games. You know, he he won us the game in uh, 2010 at Croke Park, the last game of rugby union played at Croke Park against Ireland. Mm. Parksy in his Gilbert boots from the touchline, Put it in on YouTube, listeners, if you want to see it. Yeah. We talk about a ballsy kick. Everyone talks about ants comes at the weekend against South Africa. Similar spot to that, and it goes straight over. And with all the pressure that he'd been under in the lead-up to kind of that game or whatever, uh, was kind of justice, really, because a quality lad, enjoyed going out with the boys, was leading the charge, and I can't speak highly enough of him. It was a tough time when we played for Scotland, but this is one of the things, right, lads, when people speak about rugby and you know, I sit here and I can't really remember the European Cup games or the Premiership games that well. I can't really remember many of the games, but when you mention the characters and you smile, yeah, when time. it's all said and done, that's what it is. And you mentioned Dan Parks. As soon as someone mentions him, I smile. Yeah, and really, when it's all said and done, you win a World Cup, you win a Six Nations, you win nothing. If you can't smile when you mention another human being's name, then you know that that person wasn't right yeah. for you. That sort of yarn to me, what probably is really understated to the the general fan is how he's gone from checking in dudes late to school to playing for Scotland. Like <laughs> the amount of fucking hard work he would have put into his game, his kicking, just everything, all while I'm trying to get out of school. Like it, it's just <laughs> like incredible. Like he would have been a very hard worker 
and and the want to play for Scotland would have been fucking huge. The want to play rugby would have been massive. So he's always been to me this figurehead of the dude really wanted to do something and he did it. Mm. And that's the thing. There's often smoke and mirrors, isn't there, with that. It's like just because a lad pisses about or he can have a laugh with you or he's checking you in and like for being late for school or they have this kind of underlying that they're not necessarily taking it seriously. You mentioned it's the hard work that goes behind that, Mm. but also back in the day where you weren't that far away from checking in young lads for being late at school or, you know, I was working behind the bar down the local rugby club. You weren't that far away from becoming an international. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And that's the kind of thing that we have lost a little bit with the professionalism of the game, but and that's where the heartbeat of all the kind of stories and the characters come from. But that's where the heartbeat of your stories come from because we can resonate playing club rugby in Australia. It's the same stories. We've all got our loose head prop mm. who we've had that weekend with. Um, and, and I just love it. I love hearing even at that level, those characters, those people, those hard work, those competitors, that's rugby, isn't it? It's mm. awesome. And that's where the podcast has taken off. So I'm sat here now as a podcaster. And the sole reason I'm sat here as a podcaster is because we had a forum or we invented a forum and had the confidence to talk about them experiences. And we just saw it blow up because, like you've just said, they were so relatable yet untold because media is so straight-laced, broadsheet, old farts, writing stuff, not all of them, but the majority of them writing stuff that is not relatable to people playing club rugby across the world. Yeah, or they can't call someone shit. Mm. They had a shit game. Mm. We can say that in this forum, which is... Exactly. And and love them next week. Love them next week. And and (laughs) swing off their balls the next week. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing. This is the joy of it, isn't it? Because, like, people think, oh, you know, you said this, or, you you know, you thought Wales were going to lose, or you thought Australian rugby was on its ass, or, you know, you're not even, you know, you supported England one week who... Yeah, I've, yeah, no problem. Passionate with that. fan. That's what podcast yeah. it is. Yeah, exactly. I just enjoy it. You know, I want to. I don't mind being wrong. On yeah. that, so, can we get your tips yeah. for next week? What do you reckon? Do the North continue, or do the South roar back? Okay, cool. Hit me. South Africa, Wales. What do you reckon? South Africa, Wales. Well, the, both games have been close. So, whatever team South Africa have put out, whether it would be a second team at the weekend or that last kick they won in the first test. Wales are a stuffy team for South Africa, always have been. The way that they play in the World Cup, in the semi-final, Wales limped into the game against South Africa and nearly beat them. The way them teams match up are very similar. That's why they've not been great spectacles. I will be shocked if South Africa lose. I will be shocked Mm. if they lose. They'll obviously bring all the the boys back in. Um, It'll be South Africa A with Pollard, surely. Exactly. I I don't know know whether Pollard's at the level now. Yeah. Like headline, but... It's. Uh, I think South Africa will win. I think it will be close, but I think they'll win. But Wales would have taken, obviously, a huge amount of confidence. You know, does Anscombe start a 10 ahead a bigger, potentially? Uh, he had a good game when he came on, Anscombe, but I'm a huge bigger fan as well. Yeah, but I will be shocked if South Africa win that. I know we're doing predictions, but a very, very... Sorry. I, no, sorry. Shock I'll be shocked Wales if win. Wales yeah, win yeah, that. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I know we're doing predictions, so... I'll... Sorry to interject about this, but with the South African teams joining the uh, the United Rugby Championship, in a word, good idea or bad idea? Amazing. Yeah, I don't know where I don't know where that sits for for Australia in the championship. We used to watch the Super Championship down here. I know there's going to be a breakaway, or there's some stuff happening down there politically in terms of the structure. Um, 
South Africa, because of the time zones, there's an appetite for them to get into the Six Nations. So yeah, it almost seems like a bit of a precursor for that. Hopefully, Mate, Georgia not. are knocking on the door. Yeah, they are. Beat Italy. But the thing is with South Africa, I don't want to see them in the Six Nations. I'm a traditionalist. Hmm. I don't mind a Georgia coming in. It's a European competition. Yeah, I'm with you on that. But Agreed. it seems financially, commercially, that that might happen. I'd love, I love the championship. I love the Tri Nations, hmm. the Four Nations, whatever it was before. Mate, as we've said on this, that's just another World Cup, isn't it? Just without South Zealand. Africa in there, it's a World Cup without the Cable. Well, they're talking about putting a World League in as well in the two years. So the Lions year, they're talking about putting a, a World League competition because they want to match up with the football. They, they would, they've done it with the with the football, haven't they? They've had this Euro, Euro League to qualify, and they want to follow it with the with the rugby, which is a crazy idea. It's yeah. just too much. Like seriously, keep tradition. Exactly. I love the Six Nations. Mate, the players it? are playing fuckloads of game as yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. Talk about player welfare. Exactly. I spoke to Ebenezerbeth. Yeah, I spoke to Ebenezerbeth, and he said the maximum number of games, which is the general consensus for all professional players at the minute, is twenty-five to twenty-six a year. So annually, a, a year, mate. It's got to be max. If you want the quality of what we what we want and what we come to expect, you only have to have a look at the injuries. Yeah, that we've seen. Yeah, Hooper said over it this weekend. Series said it's three grand finals in a row. Mm. These three games against England. It's no surprise the Wallabies have mm. lost seven or eight players. It's three grand finals in a row. And then they go into a championship against All Blacks, <laughs> the biggest teams yeah. in the world again. And it's, so it's not sustainable, but we don't want to. We're trying to big it up here, but that is the truth. But in answer to the question, URC, I mean, the fact the two South African teams were in the final, I imagine they were hating it. But um, I think for the for the value of the game, because the URC has been a dying breed, it wasn't even called the URC. It was called the the Rabble Ten and the Pro Twelve and the Pro Fourteen. In all the uh, compared to the Premiership, it hasn't been a great product. But the South African teams have massively added to that. Mm. Um, moving on to predictions, and we'll probably want uh, go to the one that we, uh, or I'm most interested in. Sorry, I know you probably love Scotland, Argentina, and but Wallabies. No, I'm not. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I'm not. I mean, the the two games have been. Dirt. What what is going on there at the moment? Because obviously there was the, the Gregor Townsend issue, and and obviously Scotland have been regressing. What what's going to change it? I don't know. I, I can't see where there's going to be a big change. You look at the under twenties again. We're going bloody deep into Ruggers here. They are getting hammered mm, at the minute. So they got mm. beat by they got fifty five points put on them by the Georgian under twenties mm. team. Wow! Uh, a couple last week or a couple of weeks ago. Mm. So that shows you the shift and the change of guard. The Italian under twenties beat them as well, mm. who are apparently coming through. So my point being. It's not as if there's a next gen of players coming through no. where you're like, I'll oh, just watch this space. Yeah. We've had our kind of golden era, it feels, like with Stuart Hogg in his prime, Finn Russell in his prime, mm, Hamish Watson, Watson in his yeah. prime, Ali Price in his prime. So, you know, there's a bit of smoke and mirrors at the weekend beating Argentina 29 points to six. But in terms of being at the top table and you look at the games we've seen at the weekend, you do wonder whether or not long term... Yes, we beat France a couple of years ago in the Six Nations during COVID, beating England back to back. But I'm talking about long, like, which everyone is, long-term sustainability. Mm -hmm. I'm struggling to see at the minute where Scotland are. And I can only see that Gregor Townsend will be here to the World Cup. You look at the pool that Scotland have got with Ireland, South Africa. You know, the, some of the boys, some of my mates up here are worried about Uruguay, <laughs> which kind of shows you, doesn't it? So it's... Uh, but yeah, I think Scotland rugby is in a difficult spot at the minute compared to what we're seeing you know, at the kind of top end of the table. Yeah, you're a bit of a bogey team for Australia too, so you've always got that. Yes, I was going to say you're that. They're a team that, fucking. you know, for against Australia, we just play open rugby and that's yeah. where Scotland are the very best. Wenfin Russell's playing. That's right, that's right. So just to finish on Scotland, what do you think will happen at the weekend? you think it was a, a flash in the pan and you'll expect that Scotland will lose, unfortunately, to Argentina at the weekend? 
I think it'll be close. And again, it's a hard one to call. I'm not going to sit behind and say, I don't know. I don't like sitting on the fence. 29 points to six against Argentina is a huge score. Yeah, right? it is. With Hamish Watson, they've got a young lad called Rory Darge without drawing comparisons to Hooper. He's very similar to Hooper when he's in his prime. Very similar to Hamish Watson. They look better with them two on the pitch together. They've got Blair Kinghorn at 10. I don't know whether that he'll play at 10 again. He's, In my opinion, he's not a 10, but Gregor loves him as a 10, so he'll put him in there. I think Scotland will beat Argentina at the weekend. I just think there's enough there. I saw enough at the weekend, but there'll be a bit of a backlash. Argentina got some quality players and uh, they're in transition. They've got they've got checks, haven't they, at the helm? I'd probably go against you there, just on the number that Are Checker... Are going against a former just international Checker, what are new you doing, time man? coach into the Argentinians team and what he can do is he can fire a dude up, right? It's a strength of his and coming off their first loss as a squad together. Um, they they do have flash in the pan form. I'm expecting Argentina to come out here. Yeah. They've got some good players, Argentina. They do. Uh, Matera, who carved up. Uh, but, I mean, he, he likes a yellow and so does Kremlin. Loves, <laughs> loves, well. loves, yeah. loves the cheese. Loves the cheese. I want to know, England, Australia, what are your views? I mean, you're a chance of playing second row for Australia. Yeah, two. Well, exactly. I think you look at it. My goodness me. Um both teams are limping, I feel, mm. into it. End of a long season for England. I don't think the Marcus Smith-Owen Farrell thing is working. No, neither are. It worked at the weekend to a degree because the forwards were so direct. Obviously, Genji ran over Hooper early doors, scored a driving line out early on. It only worked really, not only because of the forwards, but I felt like... Uh, Owen Farrell took the ball so flat at times, uh, which is in the previous mm. week they didn't. And, and I think... I think for me personally, I'd like to see Owen Farrell move back in at 10 uh, and get maybe a stronger runner. I would as well. A stronger runner, a straighter runner, you know, like a Karevi star. Not that there is, you know, Tuolangi was injured and stuff, but to have someone like that at a 12. And you look where England carved Australia this weekend was no Kellaway, no Banks territory. Mm. Our back three were a shamozzle. I know Pattaya went off early. Mm. It added to the shamozzle. When England were kicking the ball, they were all over Australia. Uh, when they did the Marcus Smith second man play shit, Australia looked fine. Well, he drifts too much and then doesn't have the bigger guy to to hit a straight line enough and to be more effective. So for me, I'd like to see. But they don't have one. Yeah, no, yeah, they don't. yeah. They don't no, have one, no. and, and that, that's the issue. So to, I think to your point, everyone wants not everyone. A lot of people thought Marcus Smith had the keys to the kingdom, mm. but I think it's glaringly obvious where England are lacking, which is in that midfield. Too uh, there's obviously, they haven't they, they, mm. they haven't got, and this will be the big thing going forward. So they're looking for different ways to play. Um, obviously, we've lost Maru Otoji, I say we, yeah. we're talking about England, Northern Hemisphere. We're talking about here, Richard. I say we, I'm a quarter English. <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, obviously Sam Underhill as well. <laughs> Tom, Tom Curry as well. Two evenly matched teams. I just look at Australia, how injured a lot of the players are going going into the um the game Tong and Thor actually coming back from injury you can see he he's was gonna have a bit between the teeth at the weekend as well isn't it he was underdone but like that's what I mean the two even just the two carries the one where he scored and one where he nearly scored he wa- can, he warmed thinking, into it didn't he by the second half you're like oh yeah, shit did. this is what he can do yeah um, I, think, I think you lads were kind of overwhelmed by the that it felt like and I think reading a few comments after the game I can't think whether or not it was with a pundit or... Oh, it was Nick White, actually, so fairly important. Um, <laughs> he, he mentioned that it was obviously spoken about because of Darcy Swain's red card is the England lads and the shithousery stuff that they were bringing to the game. 
And I've been in games before where there's a conscious effort not to rise to that and not to bite. And I think with the occasion of being at the Suncorp Stadium, the kind of Aussie, Aussie, Aussie before getting everyone to chant so everyone could hear it back in England and all that kind of stuff, I thought you lads would have come flying out of the blocks and it looked like you were just flat. Asleep, yeah. You know, it just looked like, yeah. And that was the weirdest thing for me. So that and Nick White's comments around you lads consciously saying, oh, you know, we need, to, we, we can't get involved in all this stuff. You lads obviously need to front up massively in terms of from the start physically, which I think you will. I love Darcy Swain and his headbutt. That's what Australia needs more of. I think we've been bullied by international teams. Um, and you're mm. right. I think they came out on the heels, the Wallabies, and, and got bullied for 20 minutes and then woke up. Well, have you, have you ever seen Hooper? I've never seen Hooper sat down. Yeah, no. yeah. And, and, and then we were right, but we'd given a 16-point lead. Um, well, that was the thing. Was it, was it 16 16 or 19? Nil, I, I think. think yeah, really 19 said. maybe, no, no, yeah. 19, yeah. 19. One of the teens. Yeah, it, yeah it, might have been, it might have been 19. But then you look at the score line and it was only at the end they obviously come good. Like, I think you lads look good. I, th- I, I, I really do. That's... I, I Petrus Dupassi, I, yeah. I reckon what what I'm sort of noticing, and you can even go back to the French series here last year, is we're a team that does really well when the odds are stacked against us. When we're not meant mm. to play well, we do. And we saw that second half coming down from a 19-0 deficit the game before with the red and a yellow and whatever else went down. Like that's when we showed up for each other. But when we're full complement on full complement, we're sort of waiting for the game to come to us or we're waiting for a decision to not go our way to really rival and rev us up. That's where, that's what I sort of see when we're, when we're playing these games. These and speaking encounters. of Marcus Smith and Owen Farrell, I think Noah's playing playing above his weight but we lacked a general in that first half. The game went a bit chaotic and Australia failed to calm it the fuck down. Um, it looked like mm. we just played into the chaos a little bit for that first half an hour. Well, that's what I mean. The, the, the issue is going to be at the weekend, and this is what I think the tactics will be. You're, you lads are going to be so bored. Your mates who are watching it, who last game was the 2003 World Cup and then the weekend with the intercept that they weren't happy about they're going to kick the leather off the ball. I think England will play all territory. They'll give yeah, they will. Australia mm-hmm. nothing. And it's going to be a bore fest. I, I, I don't think it's going to be a great game. And that's what, the only way I can see England winning it, because Australia looks so dangerous when they get through the phases, when they get into the 22, is going to be kicking the leather off the ball. Mm. I don't think you'll see England play much because they don't have much outside of Marcus Smith in terms of ball carriers. You know, Johnny May might come back into the team. We come off second best in that format. Karevi's our leading kicker. Well, we just don't have the back three at the moment. Mm. There you go. And that, so they'll know that. So with the injuries that you've got and the players that have gone off, I mean, we could Not to mention the line out. Spend too. time going through the players. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So we're in picking it here. We're in picking Australian rugby's demise in this third Isn't test. It? Right here, Isn't right it? now. We're, just, exactly we're hurting, Jim. Yeah, we're but hurting. the problem is, is I'm the realist, the pommy over here, who's probably going to say, I can see Australia still coming away with a victory on Saturday. I, I just really can. I just the moment of brilliance. I think uh, that it's such a toss of a coin. A yellow card or a red card might actually sway it. Um, and I could see Australia still, mm. still I think winning. scoreboard pressure matters in this one. It's whoever starts mm. well. Yeah, cool. I mean, I'm going to say England because of the reasons I've just said. I think they'll kick kick the leather off the ball and I think that the back three issues that you've got, youngster at 10 still, yeah. you know, does O'Connor 
come back in. I don't know. He, he was awful on the weekend, kicking. but I kind of wish he started yeah. at 10, though, in hindsight. I like him at 15 because at least he could be a yeah. second playmaker, though, at times and help Noah out a little bit. I think he struggled. I think he straight struggled with that at times. But could I just say the fact that uh, I've watched you many times playing in the Scotland shirt and not like Jim, the fact that you've just, you know, backed England with, uh, against two Aussie fat. Thank you so much for doing that. It's <laughs> the happiest I've ever been with you. Thanks, mate. Quarter English. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, what about the last game? So they got New Zealand and uh, New Zealand and Ireland. Cracker of a game. Surely Ireland can't do it back to back. I wouldn't want to be Ireland. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think the, I think I think I think I think that that's what we said. Ireland were at one hundred and ten percent at the weekend. Bernard Jackman, one of the uh, the great pundits and analysts over here, put some really good stuff on social media around the kicking and kickoff receipts and some of the kind of nuances yeah, of the game. Ireland were, at, Ireland, Ireland were at their very best at the weekend. The issue that Ireland have got, which is the million-dollar question, what do they look like without Sexton? Mm. He's phenomenal at the minute. Isn't he went he? off injured again at the weekend. There's no – I can't see anything about whether he's going to play. You know, you mentioned about Furlong. Their back row in Doris, Omani and Josh van der Fleer were phenomenal. They were the best I've ever seen them play in an Ireland jersey. So – You've got, like they're a well-rounded team. For me, I think for the reasons you've just said there, and you don't like to use the word disaster because it can be used, obviously, when stuff is very serious, but it's a disastrous situation if the All Blacks lose against Ireland at the weekend. Right? Yeah. And I, I think they know that. I think the coaches know that. I think the players know that. They obviously went down to 13, should have been 12. They played the majority of the game with 14. And... They're a team, as we know, that if they're firing on all cylinders, they're unplayable. Mm. And I think it's going to be an absolute. I think it's going to be one of the best games we've we've seen this, we've seen over the last few years. Yeah, no, hopefully. and I think the All Blacks will win. Yeah, I think I think we're all on that train. Yeah, aren't we? All Blacks will, will definitely. Adi Savio will play eighty, and that makes a difference. Mm, no, He's one of the best players in the world right oh, now. But oh, he is, yeah, hundred percent. So, just last question from me, really. You are you obviously do the uh, the rugby pod with uh, with Andy Goode, um, number one podcast rugby podcast. Last thing for us, really, what would be a, a a tidbit of of advice that you would give to us? For obviously, we've been doing this for a little bit, but is there anything you would say? You know, for us to continue to get our podcast to be, you know, better really, is it consistency? What Any advice you would give us? I think that you've just said there, consistency. Sometimes it could be tough, you know, like doing it every single week and when you're not feeling up to it or whatever. But I think the consistency, I think that that's a proven thing uh, in terms of the way that the, I'm sound like a right norse, around the <laughs> algorithms work, around podcasting. You know, people need to know that when they, you know, it comes to a Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning or whenever yours goes out, that it's there and it's on and they can dip in, they can dip out. How do people do with podcasts? I think the hardest thing that we found as we grew and we got to a level of people listening and critiquing it, commercial sponsors coming in, that there was almost like they wanted us to change and be who we weren't. Mm. And so yeah, we, we had understanding, that you guys are understanding, yeah, mm. exactly. You're thinking you can't swear or you can't have a slip of the tongue or you can't make a mistake. Like that's not what it is is it mm. like you don't want to be there like as in you know everything it need you know you making the right predictions every time like i think yeah. the human element is what people love the fact that you, you know you can be sat there with a few beers and it's just well again like i know we, we've obviously spoke about it. it's just makes chatting about rugby mm. you ain't going to get it right it's going to be a difference of opinion so i think the big thing is the enjoyment aspect of it 
You know, I, me and Goody have done the rugby pod now for six years and it's just, we've just not changed. We just, you know, it is what it is. Like we get things right, we get things wrong, but people know every Tuesday morning that it's there to listen to. So I think the words of advice is just to carry on and just enjoy it. You know, bring your mates in as well. It's quite funny. Um, I brought my mate in to do a podcast uh, a while ago and he just sat there and just said about three words. <laughs> and we were like, you know what, but that's him. Like weird. He's a weird bloke, you know? He just didn't say anything. We're like, yeah, well, that's him. He don't say anything. That, so there's authenticity, which is the key word. Was that big chunk? <laughs> and they didn't show no, up. My, my, my mate, FNL Mike. <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't show up. He was in bed. <laughs> um, well, just thank you so much for being generous with your time, mate. It's a Super privilege generous. to yarn with you. Yeah, um, thanks and just the insight, on. that little tidbit about Eben at Sabeth saying 25, 26 games is, is a max. That That's something I've been thinking about for ages. We talked about it mm. a couple of weeks ago, how much rugby is the, is the best or what do the what do the players want more so than what the – supply and demand sort of ask for um that shit is amazing to me so thanks heaps yeah i think you're inside into what makes a team which is people and it's almost a fluke that mix of personalities the ultra competitors the good blokes um it's awesome so thanks so much for your time thank you i'll just end on this as well just because in terms of what you guys like should do i don't want to tell you what to do or whatever but oh, this kind do. of stuff right but this kind of stuff in terms of like just chatting to an audience about rugby and about the crack and, you know, even just making the predictions on the games of how's it going to go. Like, we don't really know. Like, there's so many things that go into the pot of a rugby game, right? Yeah, I kind of do sometimes. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, you know, if, we're, if we're going to be arrogant. No, we're, but that's what I mean. The game's so difficult to consume. There's so much going on. There's so many interpretations. It is in a bit of a, as Luke Pierce said, a bit of a grey area at the minute. It can be difficult to consume, but it comes back to the people. That's what rugby is. That's what rugby will always be. Different walks of lives, all different shapes and sizes, and it comes back to the people. And I think, you know, we're chatting about it. You've got a podcast. I've got a podcast. And I think that's what people want. They just want the game to grow and they want to laugh and enjoy it along the way. I know. And as I said before, I really enjoyed listening to your, your podcast with uh, uh, Drew Mitchell the other day, the Big Jim Show. So I'm looking forward to getting some more, listening to some more uh, over the next few weeks. And so. next summer in the UK, we'll come to your pub. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, certainly. Please do. Wolfpack in Fulham. Showing all the games this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chad. Yeah, George Gregan was there. Yeah, wasn't oh, he? Where's that? Where's that? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Cheers, mate. Yeah, thanks a lot. No, thank no, you. No, thank you, Jim. Catch it's up. been awesome.